All right, Coffee House Bible, page 852, is Matthew 25. Matthew 25. This is the last part of Matthew that we're going to get to cover. Um, guys, I have loved going through the Gospel of Matthew. And if you didn't know we were in the Gospel of Matthew all year, um, I guess I have news for you. We've been in the Gospel. We didn't go in order, and so it was a little different. We, we kind of took it in bite-sized series. And the final series is where we look at the final, the final teaching of Jesus. Jesus does this thing at the end of all his, his teachings in the Gospel of Matthew. There's five teachings. And at the end of every one, he like raises the stakes and it feels like he's talking about judgment. And after every, even the Sermon on the Mount, it's like blessed, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit. That starts out, that's great. And then by the end, he's like, but if you don't, your house is going to get smashed like a, a foolish man who built his house on the sand. It's like, okay, Jesus. Second speech, he does the same thing. Third, fourth, and here we are in the final speech. This is the final thing he says before he's betrayed the next day. This is Jesus in his last words. Really, we're, today, we're looking at Jesus' final teaching, and the final teaching on Jesus is on the final judgment. And can you imagine what it would be like if you had to stand in front of a, a group of people and talk about the final judgment? Like, what would you be feeling? You're probably not excited. And th- so I, I feel probably some of what you might, might feel if you were asked to do that. It's a weird place to be in. But here's a couple of things, just as we're thinking of judgment. This is things that give me peace, and maybe you too as you think about this weird text and this weird idea that one day we're going to stand before Jesus. The thing one is like, just because you don't like an idea doesn't mean it's not true. It's like, that's, that's a really terrible way to decide if you're going to believe something. It's like, I'm, I don't like it, so it must not be true. Like, th- good luck with that. There's a whole lot of things in this world that I don't like that are very much true. So, thing two, on <laughs> kind of talking about judgment. While the idea of judgment may scare us, the idea of justice is something we long for. We want justice. We want good judges. And <laughs> I'm grieved every time I open up the paper and there's just an update on like the latest in incompetence and criminal activity in our judges in the city. It's not good to have bad judges. It's not good to have a city with no justice. Injustice is confronted. Justice comes through judgment. And so we may not like the idea of judgment because there's some personal sins that are like, I don't. I don't want to be judged. After all, we're the culture who says, don't judge me. But yet, we're also the culture who says, we have to be people of justice. I mean, you can't watch a football game without seeing like justice, justice, justice. It's everywhere. And yet, how do you hold those together? The cultural kind of messaging around justice and judgment is incoherent. You can't have one without the other. Christianity has a way of actually holding together them both beautifully. And so even if you don't like it, that doesn't make it not true, but actually Christianity has a message about judgment that really makes me like it. Because Christianity promises that the God who made everything is going to make everything new. He is making all things new. And he, he's not just like oppressing, he's not committing injustice. In fact, as we'll see by the very end, the Christian story is that the God who made everything stepped down and endured the worst of the oppression that this world had to offer 
and through enduring the oppression that was meant for us and that was committed by us, he finds a way out for all who will say yes to him. I, I think the, the message of judgment is actually really good news. And even if you're not there today, that doesn't make it not true. But it's still a little weird to talk about, right? Judgment, New Year's Eve. Happy New Year's Eve, everyone. This is the party. <laughs> it's like, all right. And yet, here we are at the climax. That's, that's what scholars say. Like, this is what it's all been building towards. This is the final word from Jesus before he dies. I think we should listen. It might be good news. All right, so let's, let's dive into the text. I've got four observations, three and a fourth, on, on judgment and how we're judged, okay? So these are going to be straightforward. These are teachings that you can find all over in the New Testament, and we find them right here in this text. So with Jesus, a lot of times he says things are hard to understand. I'm, I'm trying to, like, be a good reader of Scripture, and so kind of like we've done in previous parts of the series, we're going to we're going to really pull in the context of Matthew and the story of what Jesus has been doing in this book. But the first point is, is pretty clear all over Scripture and in this text. And it's that we're all going to answer to Jesus. Everybody. We're all going to answer to, we're going to stand before the judgment seat is how it's sometimes described. And this may sound like a weird idea. We're the weird ones. Every culture in history has some judgment scene where you stand before the, the gods, or in this case, the son of man who is Jesus, and you have to give an answer, an account for the things that you've done and not done. And here's, here's the Christian story that we'll all answer, not just to some random judge, not just to some idea of God, we'll answer to a man, and his name is Jesus. A man who lived, a man who, who, who was born, we just celebrated that, a, a man that had friends, Right, a man that walked and ate, and he, you could you could have met him. And here's the really crazy thing: is that we we have, <laughs> we have met him, because that man who was crucified has been raised and he's ascended to heaven, and from there he's coming to judge the living and the dead. It's that one that we get to answer to. I say get to answer to, because if you really knew him, you'd be excited to meet him. I can't wait to see Jesus and meet him face to face. So, first point is that we'll all answer to Jesus. Look at this parable. This is the parable of the sheep and the goats. It's really not a parable, though. The sheep and the goats part is just an illustration about what some scholars call a future history. Like, th this isn't some story that he made up. Some parables are fictional. This is future history. This is going to happen. Now, the sheep and the goats part, that's an illustration. But the judgment scene, it's going to. This is how it's presented. This is what Jesus says in this climactic final message. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, the Son of Man is this really important Old Testament title, the prophets, Daniel 7. He talks about one like a Son of Man. He's going to be struck down and he's going to suffer, but then he's going to ascend to the right hand of God and he's going to have all nations answer to him. Son of Man, it sounds like a kind of a lower title to a lot of Americans, but in, in a Jewish setting like Jesus is in, it's a very high title. It's a, it's a divine title. So much so that if you look at the next page in your Bible, Matthew 26, verse 64, the reason he's condemned as blasphemous, he, he's executed because he's claiming to be divine. He's executed on the grounds of blasphemy. The reason is because he says, I'm the son of man and I'm going to come on the cloud. 
It's this title. This is his divine judgment title. And it says, when he comes in his glory. So a lot of times the Gospel of Matthew doesn't really show us that Jesus is divine. It just leaves these little subtle clues that just clearly point to the way. The title Son of Man points to the divinity of Jesus. But his glory is another surefire way of seeing that Jesus is, he is human, yes, fully. But he's also fully God here. He's coming with all the angels, and he will sit on his glorious throne. Now, what's that going to look like? I don't know exactly. Daniel 7, great text to read, verses 13 and 14. But here's what it says. All the nations, all the nations, all the nations will be gathered before him. Now, all the nations, you probably know this phrase, Matthew 28, right, 18. Go make disciples of who? All the nations. In Greek, it's the same phrase. And so we have to remember where we're at in the story of Jesus. Jesus is on his last night before he's crucified. And the next time we hear him talking to to this group of people, it's Matthew 28, where he says, I want you to go into all the nations. This is when he's coming back and all the nations are answering. So the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate. This is what judgment is in the Gospel of Matthew. It's, it's a separation. It's a parsing between. He will separate the people from one and another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Now, sheep and goats is just kind of a really common Jewish agricultural metaphor, obviously. There's nothing special about sheep. They love goats too, right? <laughs> it's, like, it's not like one's way more valuable than the other. It's but it's really interesting that as they all answer to him, it's not on the basis of like their strength. It's not on the basis of their riches. It's not on the basis of their ethnicity or their gender. They're just all, all the nations are answering just as a shepherd who knows what he's doing. Jesus is presented as a good shepherd. He knows his sheep. He knows their voice. He, they know his voice. He, he's good. He's, he's trustworthy. He's like a shepherd. In fact, the first time we meet Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, little baby Jesus, the prophecy is from Malachi that says that he's going to come and he's going to shepherd his people. The first word about Jesus and the last word about Jesus are saying that he's a good shepherd. He can be trusted. And so the, the basic point in this text is that one day everyone will answer to Jesus. He's the son of man. He's on the throne. He's earned the status in, in that heavenly realm to where at the end of the age, everyone will be, all the nations, no exceptions, will stand and answer before his seat. And this is a teaching that's all across the New Testament. Jesus will judge the world, Acts 17. He will judge the living and the dead. That's the Apostles' Creed. But before that, that was Acts chapter 10. That's 2 Timothy 4. That's 1 Peter 4. He it says that we must all appear before the judgment seat of the Messiah, 2 Corinthians 5. All will stand before his judgment seat to give an account of himself, Romans 14. Jesus says, the word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Romans says he will judge according to my God. Guys, it's everywhere. It's like every book of the New Testament is basically saying that everybody's going to answer, and they're answering to a person named Jesus. And Jesus is the judge who's entrusted with the task. And I think this is good news. There's a lot of bad judges in the world. 
And I think some of our hesitation when it comes to judgment, and especially final judgment, it's like the final boss in a video game, it's like, I don't know if I can go all the way there and take them on. It's like, it's because we have seen such obscured visions of what justice and judgment truly are. And Jesus is the one who's coming, and he's going to make all those right. So whenever I think of judgment, it's actually really good news that you answer to him, not to me, not to you, not to your mom or your dad, not to our local magistrates, not to our Supreme Court. You know, it's just like everywhere you look, you can point to failures and injustice, but you can't look to Jesus and find anything. It's good news. We will all answer, but we will answer to Jesus. Second point that we see in this text is that we're saved by grace. We'll answer to Jesus, but we're saved by grace. Now, again, every one of these points is all over the New Testament, but it's also right here in this text. Take a look at the next verse. Then the king, I love this, it's, the king is, there's this slogan in first century Judaism where they say, no king but God. God, in their literature, is the only one who's really called the king. Yeah, sure, David was king, but now we're waiting for God to become king. The message of Isaiah, the gospel message is, behold, your God reigns. And Jesus keeps telling the stories of, I'm the king. He is both God and human. The king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, come. It's the first invitation. The first time Jesus sees a disciple in the gospel of Matthew, he says, come, follow me. And the last word that we will hear at judgment is, come, you who followed me. He says, you are blessed by my father, Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Can you just notice those two words that are highlighted, the, the two verbs? You're blessed and it's been prepared. There's a couple of just like nerdy things you could, if you were reading a Greek text, you'd notice that both of these verbs are passive. You know what passive means? It means they're not active. They're not something you do, they're something that's being done to you. you you're you're being blessed. That's literally what it says. You're, it's being prepared. This isn't your doing. This is something that's done for you. It's this gift. So we'll all answer to Jesus, but when we answer to Jesus, the verdict is, look what I did for you. You're blessed by my father. My father it's this inheritance language. Inheritance is where you receive a gift on the basis of who, normally, on who you're related to. And Jesus says, you just need to know my dad. You've been blessed by my father. You've been loved. You've been filled up with peace and joy. This, this is all grace. So you're receiving an inheritance is because there's a last will and testament. Somebody is dispersing their assets, and it says that because someone else died, you get to receive some gifts. And that's the inheritance that Christianity is describing. It's not because you did anything. It's not because you earned anything. It's just because someone named you in their will, because someone blessed you, because someone prepared something for you. What's prepared? The kingdom. The kingdom. That new heavens and the new earth where everything is made right. He says, I, this is the goal of it all. 
Um, I've been thinking of the Nicholsons. They have been in a long house build. Some of you know that. Over two years. And finally this past week, praise God, they moved in. <laughs> it's like, it's, like it, it's been so long in coming, but the Lord says, this is prepared before, this is the goal of everything. The reason there is anything is because the goal of everything is God wants to be with you in the kingdom. That's grace, guys. It's, it's all grace. There's, there's no earning hinted here. But still, that's not the, all this text says. In fact, one scholar, um, Bruner, he says, yes, there's grace here, but let's not go <laughs> overboard here. He says, it's noted, but it's not emphasized. Not because I don't like the emphasis. It's many Christians' favorite truth, but because I don't think its emphasis is fair to the text. To overemphasize this point, he says, would not be faithful to Matthew's theology of responsibility. It is saved by grace, but the, the next point that we see is that you are judged by works. Very next verse. If you just dive into verse 35, Jesus gives the verdict. You're, you're blessed. You're receiving what's been prepared. You're inheriting something from the one who died. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And you're like, when did I do all of that? And when did I do it to you? That's the really good question here. But look at all of this language of you gave me. You gave me. You invited me. You clothed me. You looked after me. You came to visit me. You see, these aren't passive anymore. These aren't things that are done for you by another person. This isn't something that's gifted to you. This is something you did. Or, as we'll see, didn't do. Let's, let's keep going. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison or go to visit you? Do you see this repeated question? When did we see you? It's one thing to say judgment is based on works, but really what we're saying is judgment is based on the works that you do to Jesus. It's like, what? Well, that's exactly what they asked. The king will reply, truly, I tell you, Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did for me. We'll come back to this verse. But notice the highlighted phrase. Whatever you, finish it, did. You did for me. And this isn't like unusual in Matthew 25. This is all the way across the gospel of Matthew. It's like, well, nobody can know your heart. And Jesus is like, well, yeah, sure. But you can know somebody's heart by what they're doing. That's what he says. He says, the axe is at the root of the tree. He says, you'll know a tree by its fruit. Some trees are going to be struck down. They're going to be thrown into the fire. This is all judgment metaphors. He says, some days you're going to stand before Jesus, and some people are going to say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy? Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we heal? And he'll be like, I never knew you. Depart from me. So even people who have some works are still held to a standard of judgment where in, in this case, it's whatever you did to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did for me. So what happens to these people? It says, then he will say to them on the left, depart from me. Notice that 
in, in its ultimate sense, for all the critiques of hell, how can hell be just? Hell at its definition is separation from God. Now, what all that means in all its metaphorical language in the New Testament is a really important question. Um, we'll, we'll talk more about that in the future. I've, I've talked about hell more than I wanted to this year. But at its root, it is this proclamation, depart from me. That's all. And if you think it's unjust for Jesus to say, get away from me, to people who want nothing to do with him, I don't know what to tell you. He, what more does he have to do? It's like, if, if only God had done, it's like, how, how are you filling that blank? It, it just doesn't comprehend that the one who made the world was crucified by it. It seems like enough to me. And certainly, there's a burden on the church to go and share that news with the people who haven't heard that. So may, may the Lord send up workers into the harvest because the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. We, we've got a mission to do, but like the, the message is actually pretty simple. He says, come to the ones who say, come, I want to follow you. And he says, depart to the ones who say, I don't want anything to do with you. Remember Lewis's quote that we looked at last week? In the end, there's only two kinds of people. Those, to whom God, uh, those who say to God, your will be done. And those to whom God says, no, your will be done. Everyone gets what they want in the end. Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now it's a scary phrase. The eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. But notice the good news about why there is such a thing as an eternal fire. It's that Jesus isn't just dealing with like the fruit of injustice and oppression and wrongdoing. Jesus is dealing with the root of it. He's not just dealing with evildoers. He's dealing with the source of evil itself. He, he wants to eliminate all evil in, in the most just way possible. And so there's this place that's prepared for them. So he says, for I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. And they will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and didn't help you? And he will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Man, judgment is based on works in this text, all over this text all throughout the Gospel of Matthew and throughout the New Testament. Take a look at Romans 2, verse 6. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. 1 Corinthians 3, if anyone's work, he says, we're all going to stand and it's going to be burned up. But he says, but if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved but only as through fire. What, that, what I think that means is that for believers, a lot of what we present to God and, and our actions is actually not going to be able to stand at the judgment day. Particularly for ministers. He has this idea in 1 Corinthians 3 of presenting people, like people that you were trying to disciple. And a lot of them, he says, like you, it's going to be sorrowful. You'll make it. That's, that's not what's in question here. 
but a lot of what we offer to the Lord and our actions won't. 2 Corinthians 5, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Why? That each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Revelation 20, it's a vision. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Remember the, the book of life? Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. If your name's written in the book of life, there's also this book of deeds. And if your name's in the book of life, your deeds show up. That's, that's the idea here. And so we are judged by works, but we are not saved by works. You remember, we will all answer to Jesus and we are saved by, finish it, grace. But then the judgment continues and it says that, yes, we're saved by grace, but we're judged by works. Works then become a sign of salvation. I was looking at my, my boy Tim Keller, um, as usual. Keller's written a lot of really good stuff on justice. And he was reflecting on Matthew 25, particularly our text today. He says that this text famously teaches that people will be accepted or condemned by God on the last day, depending on how they treated the hungry and the homeless, the immigrant, the sick, and the imprisoned. He says, how can this be? Does this contradict Paul's teaching that we're saved by faith in Christ, not our works? And he says, actually, if you look at saving faith in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's always marked by justice and mercy. He says, in the Old Testament, giving to the poor is an essential mark of godliness. The famous verse, Micah 6, 8, requires that a man do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. So Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke, he says that to do justice and to love mercy mean to be kind to the oppressed and the marginalized and active in helping people who are financially and socially in a weaker condition. But this, he says, isn't just the Old Testament, it's also the New Testament. Care for the poor is a thing so essential that the contrary cannot consist with a sincere love to God. First John 3 says, if you love God and you ignore your brother who's in need, how can you say you love God who you haven't seen when you don't even love your brother who you have seen? So Keller says, doing justice and mercy is not a meritorious reason, that means you earn it, that God will accept us. It's not that. Rather, Doing justice and mercy for the poor is an inevitable sign that someone has justifying faith and grace in the heart. He says a really good commentary on Matthew 25 is James chapter 2. Do you remember James? James is famous for saying that uh, you're not saved by faith alone. He's like, you say faith alone? He says, you say you have faith with no works? I'll show you my faith by my works. And so, Protestants, when we're putting this together, we are saved by faith alone, but not by faith that remains alone. We are saved by grace, but grace, the experience of undeserved favor from God, inevitably always leads to actions, justice, and mercy. Works? Yeah, and James, it's the works of widows and orphans and keeping yourself undefiled from the world. It's when you see a brother or sister in need. He says, particularly when you see someone hungry and when you see someone who doesn't have clothes. He says, this is faith in action. Judgment, James says, without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. What does he mean by mercy? What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no works? Can such faith save him? No. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes 
and daily food. And one of you says, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed. But he doesn't, he does nothing about his physical needs. What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. Keller, once more. James says point blank that those who say they have justifying faith but close, to their, close their hearts to the mission of the poor, they are mistaken or liars. You hear that? <laughs> it's like, it's never, these have to go together. Here again, we have the teaching, you will not find mercy from God on judgment day if you have not shown mercy to the poor during your lifetime. This is not because caring for the poor saves you, but because it's the inevitable outcome of saving justifying faith. Every salvation in Scripture is based on grace, and every judgment in Scripture is based on works. It's because the experience of saving grace inevitably leads you to works. And if it doesn't, it's because you haven't understood grace. You still think you're earning your salvation if you're reluctant to give it away to the poor. You think you did something to hold on to it and that they did something to not deserve it. If it's about deserve, you still haven't been saved by grace. You don't understand the power of grace. It is the experience of grace that transforms us into being generous people. These are held together all over the New Testament. Titus 2, it's the grace of God that appears. How does it appear? Because it trains us to be, basically what he says, it's good people, self-controlled, upright, live godly lives. Or Ephesians 2, right? This is the, the clincher for it all. It's by grace you have been saved through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And yet, 2 verse 10, he says, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Grace and works were never meant to be separated. We are saved by grace, we are judged. And, is it still on? And the works are evidence of our being saved by grace. All right, well, that's a lot of theologizing. But basically, I'm trying to hold these three things together about the final judgment. First, we'll all answer to Jesus. Second, we're saved by grace. Third, we're judged by works. And this is, again, the teaching throughout the New Testament. But there's something special here in verse 40 that I, I just don't want us to miss. This is like the end of year as, as we start. I'm about to wrap up. Don't worry. But as, as we think about the end of the year and next year, like how do, what is it that Jesus is saying that actually holds these things all together in one? All right. Well, answer to Jesus. We're saved by grace. We're judged by works. I think if you were to search for a phrase to hold these things together, Jesus is teaching that we are judged by how we receive Jesus. Now, that's not like profound, but I did have to work a long time to get to this phrase. We're judged by how we receive Jesus. That seems pretty self-explanatory, but it, it just pops when you see verse 40. Let's look. Remember this. This is the central thesis. How do you know it's the central thesis? Because when it says, the king says, truly I say to you, in like old King James, it would be like verily, verily. Or new King James, truly, truly. He's saying, amen, amen. He's, he, if you want to know what is the point of one of the teachings of Jesus, in every paragraph where he says this, this is the point. Listen up. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you did for one of the least of these, 
the least of these. Brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. There's so much in this phrase that Jesus wants us to listen to, and it's not what you think. It's not what you think. Who are the least of these? Now, I asked this question to a bunch of people, and everyone said the same thing. And it's not my reading, so I'm like, oh, no, what do I do here? The least of these. All right, so let's do a little exploration of the least and the little in Matthew. The least and the little ones in Matthew are a way that Matthew and Jesus are turning things upside down. Least is no longer worse. So do you remember the question, chapter 18? Who's the greatest? Who's the great ones? I don't want to be the least ones. I want to be the greatest ones. And Jesus is like, hold up. Do you really? If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, don't look down on these little ones. Your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. Many who are first will be last. Many who are last will be first. So the last will be first and the first. You know this, right? This is all over Jesus' teaching. When you read about little ones, he's not talking about small people. Sometimes he is, right? When he calls a little child up and he says you have to become like a child who's a little one. But generally, he's talking about people who are not small in stature, but small in spirit. They're humble. These are people who aren't making a name for themselves, but they're choosing the road of service. He says, you want to be great in the kingdom? How do you do it? You have to become the servant of all. Matthew 23 is like, I, I don't want you to think that you're the greatest because all of you, you have one master and you're not it. You're just brothers. You're little ones, all right? You see what least and little ones means? Least and little ones is a way for Jesus to talk about his disciples. Little ones are people who humble themselves and follow Jesus. When Jesus talks about my little ones, he's talking about his followers, his disciples. Whoever wants to become great must become your servant. But here's, here's a really clear text, Matthew 10. Matthew 10 is where he sends out his apostles into the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is a shepherding role, which is important because he's been talking about sheep and goats and shepherding. He's been talking about going into all nations. And this is another chapter where he sends out his people. And he says, anyone who welcomes you welcomes me. Anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me, meaning his father. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, who are the little ones? They're the missionaries. They're his disciples that are being sent out. One of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. Does this at all resonate with Matthew 25, our text for today, where he's saying, I was thirsty and you didn't give me anything to drink? absolutely. When did we see you? He's like, when I sent my missionary to your house and they knocked on your door and they were thirsty and hungry and didn't have anywhere to stay. And you said, go in peace, be warmed and filled. And you didn't give them anything. And you rejected the gospel that they brought. He says in Matthew 10, he's like, if they don't receive you, they don't receive me. And he says, it's going to be worse for them than it was for Sodom. That, that is absolutely the same message in Matthew 25. This is Tim Mackey, our, our friend over at the Bible Project. He says this goes all the way back in Matthew. This is a red thread throughout the Gospel of Matthew for language that he uses to describe the community of the disciples. When we talk about the least and the little ones, it's not a universal of the poor and needy. Now, does the scripture teach that we should take care of the poor and needy? That God's heart resonates with the poor and needy? Absolutely. Right doctrine, wrong text. Right? It's like that's true. That's not what this means. When he talks about receiving the least of these, he's talking about disciples who are going emboldened 
by the presence of Jesus with them into the mission field. We see this play out explicitly in Acts chapter 8. Do you remember when Saul is persecuting the church? What does the Lord Jesus say to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This, this is the story of what it looks like to disobey Matthew 25. And of course, his life is turned around and he's saved. So the least of these, but look at this next phrase, brothers and sisters of mine. Now, I asked numerous people just verbally to punctuate this. And I was like, who's he talking about? The least of these, brothers and sisters of mine. And everyone got it wrong. Everyone got it wrong, despite every translation in total agreement here. Look, if you've got the ESV or the King James or the New American, every translation finds different words of saying the same thing. Jesus is talking about the least of these in my family, my brothers and sisters. Let me, let me share this. This is from my, my friend Garrett Best. He's a New Testament professor at York. He says, I'm sure I just missed it, and you've known this all along, but let me share with you something I learned about a parable I've read, taught, and quoted a thousand times. For some reason, I never paid attention closely to verse 40. When it was read or quoted, I always heard the phrase, my brothers, as evocative. In, in Greek, that's a form. As you did it to one of the least of these, comma, my brothers and sisters. In other words, I thought Jesus was addressing his brothers as to why they never cared for the least of these out there in the world. I thought Jesus was chiding the disciples for not universally caring for others' needs. I read this parable as a mandate to go out into the world and do good for everything. But he says when he wrote this, this past week I was looking at the Greek and realized I had been misreading this, that verse all my life. That's just not what it says. It, it says, as the NRSV says, one of the least of these who are members of my family, the humble, devoted disciples who are leaving everything to follow Jesus and are being sent out into the world, how are they going to be received? He says that's the standard that he will judge the nations by. Did they receive Jesus? Did they receive Jesus in his people? So if only Jesus answered, who are my brothers and sisters? If we could have just a text in Matthew where Jesus told us what he means. Oh, look, there it is, Matthew 12. Who are my brothers? Then he points to his mom and and Brothers and sisters are outside, and he points at these people and says, here are my brothers. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister. Jesus tells us exactly what he means. Matthew 23. These are, y'all are brothers. Matthew 28, 10. Go tell my brothers. This is how Jesus is talking about his family in, inside the church. We are a community of people that Jesus indwells. That's what oikos really means. God has made his home in us. Jesus lives in you, and so as you go... You go and Jesus is like, I got your back. No matter where you go, what you go with, how they receive you, I've got your back and they're going to answer to me. It's like a, a little boy who has got his dad on his team playing two-on-two basketball, which I may know something about from this week in Christmas. It's like the little boy may not be able to do anything, but who is coming with him to the game? That matters a lot. So let's just close it out. All right. So we're judged by how we receive Jesus. And particularly, we're judged by how we receive Jesus in his people. All right, you'll, you'll see that? The least of these, my brothers and sisters. Which means to me, this is Craig Keener, he says, unless disciples receive one another in God's household, they reject Christ. Unless you receive one another in God's household, you reject Christ. And so I've got a New Year's resolution that I want to invite you into. 
It's one my family's taking on, and I, I think it would be a good idea for all of us who are reading Matthew 25. He's talking about the final judgment scene, and he's telling us what he's going to judge us by. Some are getting in, some are not getting in. Some are sheep, some are goats. He's separated on the basis of whether or not you're receiving his people. And so I want to receive his people. I want to give food and drink and open my table to his people. I want to give clothes to the needs of his people. And I'm not saying to the neglect of everyone, right? Paul says, let us do good to all, especially the oikos, the household of God. And so can you make a resolution? I invite you. I won't compel you. But open your home to a brother or sister at least once a month in 2024. I mean, once a month? <laughs> it's like, Jesus is like, it's only eternity. <laughs> you know? It's interesting, ancient uh, ancient scholars and teachers, whenever they're reading this, they're like, it's so easy to do this. It's shocking. Anybody can do this. And th- that's not exactly how a lot of us are receiving. We're like, that's so hard. That, that's not where they were at. Open your home to a brother or sister at least once a month. All right, let me close with Jesus. I don't even know what time it is. I never bring a phone or watch and yell like, it shows. <laughs> Let's just reflect on this phrase, you did it to me. All right, Matthew 25. If you don't like anything in Matthew 25, again, just because you don't like it doesn't mean it's not true. But you'll like Matthew 26. It's, it's the next scene, right? He goes from this, and then he sets up this Last Supper, and he, he, does, it in a, he does it in a borrowed room. Remember that? He, he rode into town on a borrowed donkey. In just a little bit, he's going to be buried in a borrowed tomb. Jesus is God. He, he's shown that. He's the son of man. He's the king. No king but God. Here I am. Everyone's going to answer. All the angels are going with him. And God became poor. He had two pigeons at his birth. That's, that's the poorest of the poor. He didn't just become poor. He became oppressed. You see it there in Matthew 26. If you have ever seen a story of injustice, this is it. This guy hasn't done anybody wrong ever in his life. And he's betrayed by a friend. He's abandoned by the rest of them. He's carted in. He's, he's beaten in an overnight mock trial. I was reading some from Joanne Terrell. She's got a book reflecting on the African-American experience. And she's just like discovering and shocked. That like Jesus was lynched. And then Jesus, he goes to their judge, the high priest and the governor. He has to answer to him. <laughs> the one who made them is now answering. And it's a, it's a mockery. They're, they're, you know, they're beating him and whipping him and scourging him. They're mocking him and spitting on him. They're inciting the crowd against him. The crowd is inciting the judges against him. And then the Son of Man, the one who all of us are going to get to meet, everyone will answer to Jesus, the Son of Man was executed in a miscarriage of justice. He says, when did we see you poor? When did we see you oppressed? When did we see you a stranger? When did we see you in prison? 
This word prison is the waiting place as you're awaiting your final trial. When did we see you hungry? Remember Jesus? They hated who he was eating with. This man eats with tax collectors and sinners. When did we see you thirsty? Jesus is like, are you able to drink the cup that I'm able to drink? Remember the old hymn, he cried, I thirst for water, but they gave him none to drink. Then the sinful work of man was done. Invited, he's like rejected in his own gathering, his own people. When did you clothe me? He is naked on the cross. You see, this is the judge. He's not willing to spare anything to rescue people from judgment. He's slow to anger and merciful. He's abounding in steadfast love. He's kind. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This is his heart. He's the good shepherd who will lay down his life for the sheep. He did. He laid down his life for us. And so, to just surrender it and go to the judge and to say, I trust you. You're the good one. Um, some of you, though, maybe you don't trust him yet. I just would say, he's better than you think. He's... <laughs> Um, give him a chance. Um, try to meet him. Seek him. The friend who you're here with, just talk with him and be like, how, how do you meet Jesus? What does that look like? Jesus is alive. The one who was crucified, the one who underwent all of that, went to the tomb, he was raised, he ascended, and he is here. I just want you to look around and see them. These are the people that Jesus saved. And he's saving thousands and millions and billions more. But he says, look what I did. And I want you to do it to me. With them. I think it would be a beautiful thing if Oikos Church, all of us, next year, could step into the kind of hospitality that Jesus demonstrated to us. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. All right, would you stand? I want to pray for you. God, would you make us generous? Would you fill us with grace, not relying on our own works? And Lord, would you transform us in grace and make us generous would you make this church a place where people can be welcomed and clothed and fed and given drink and visited and invited, where the messengers of the gospel always get a hearing, where the people who suffer in your name can find support and help in their time of need. Lord, we trust that you are good, and I ask that you work into the hearts of those who think otherwise. It's in your name we pray, amen.